The gospel lesson comes from the gospel according to Luke, chapter 16, verses 19 through 31. You can find it on page 1041 of the Pew Bible. In this gospel lesson, Jesus teaches us what will fail and what will last. Please stand as you are able for the gospel. From Luke 16, beginning at verse 19, we read in Jesus' name. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Father, these are your words. Sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. Amen. You may be seated. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. In the kingdom of heaven, Jesus turns everything around. The rich become poor, the poor become rich. Those who are full now hunger, and those who hunger now are satisfied. Earlier in the Gospel of Luke, back in chapter 6, Jesus said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry, for you shall be satisfied. And then he said, But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. And those words come to pass in this story. We hear them echoed by Abraham when he says to this formerly rich man, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. In the kingdom of heaven, Jesus turns everything around. The rich become poor, the poor become rich. Those who are full now hunger, those who hunger now are satisfied. At first glance, this story might sound like a parable. Jesus often taught in parables. They were stories, probably fictional at least most of the time, that Jesus used to illustrate something about the kingdom of God. 
For example, in the last couple of weeks, we've heard the parable of the lost coin, the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the dishonest manager, and there are many, many more. And in Jesus' parables, certain characters, objects, or events represent something in the kingdom of God. They're metaphors. And so in one parable, there's a shepherd who represents Jesus. In another parable, there is some seed that represents the word of God. In another, some wicked tenants represent the chief priests and the Pharisees. And in a few others, a wedding feast represents heaven. There's always a metaphor. But the story of the rich man and Lazarus is different. There are no metaphors. Heaven is not represented by something else. Heaven is heaven. The angels are angels. Abraham is Abraham. Hades is Hades. The rich man is the rich man. And Lazarus is Lazarus. There are no metaphors. Things are simply what they are. And this leads us to conclude that Jesus is not telling a parable. Instead, he's telling a true story. And here's the kicker. Here's the big reason why we should not think of this as a parable, but as a true story. And it's this. The poor man has a name. Nowhere in any of Jesus' parables does anyone have a name. Not the shepherd, not the prodigal son, not the good Samaritan, nobody. But in this, in this story, the poor man has a name, and his name is Lazarus. Therefore, we should recognize this to be a true story. There really was a poor man named Lazarus, and he really died, and he really went to heaven. There he was comforted. And there really was a rich man, and he really died, and he really went to Hades, and there he was in torment. Now, I suspect, I can't prove this part, but I suspect that at least some of the people in Jesus' audience knew these two men personally. I think that's one of the reasons why Jesus names Lazarus. Even of the uh, historical characters in the Gospels, many of them are not named. But here Jesus names Lazarus. And I think one of the reasons is that some of those people knew him. And if the people knew Lazarus, then they would also be able to identify what rich man Jesus was talking about, even though Jesus doesn't name him. And they would know this because that was Lazarus' spot. He would lay, or he was laid, he apparently couldn't even walk, he was laid at the rich man's gate. And so I suspect some of the people in Jesus' audience remembered this Lazarus, and they remembered where he used to lay, and so they also remembered this rich man. And perhaps even some of those Pharisees even remember walking past Lazarus on their way to a feast at the rich man's house, which he held every single day. And they remember that both of these men died. But after that, they don't know the rest of the story. But now Jesus tells them the rest of the story. Lazarus was carried to heaven where he is comforted, but the rich man went to Hades where he has been in torment ever since. The man they honored was dishonored by God, and the man they thought nothing of in this life was honored by God. And that seems to be the other reason why Jesus names Lazarus, but not the rich man. That rich man who was honored in this life is now forgotten. But Lazarus, this poor man whom few people gave any regard to in this life, will be remembered 
by name until the end of time. There's much that we can learn from this story. It certainly teaches us the concern and the charity that we should have for the poor and needy among us. And we clearly see Jesus' concern for them. Now, I'll admit that Jesus does not say in this text, therefore, you should go and give to the needy. He doesn't say that here. There are other places where he commands his disciples to care for the poor and needy, though. But he doesn't say it here, and it's not really the main point of the story. But we clearly see his love for the poor and needy. And Jesus at least implies that the rich man should have cared for Lazarus in this life. And so while it's not the main point of the story, we can certainly see it as a secondary point. God desires for us as his disciples to care for the poor and needy. Now I see passages like this one politicized a lot. Maybe you do too. It's not always the same passage. Sometimes it is. Sometimes it's the parable of the Good Samaritan. Sometimes it's another passage. Or sometimes it's just a general appeal to Jesus' concern for the poor. And I don't know how often you see it, but I hear it or see it probably a few times a week. Part of the reason for that is because I go looking for things. The idea is that Jesus commands us to care for the poor and needy. Therefore, government should fund things like health care and social welfare programs or student loans. Now, you can support those things. I'm not preaching against them. But you just can't use Jesus to do it because Jesus does not command government to do those things. And the Bible as a whole does not command the state to provide for the social care of the poor. It commands the state to do other things, especially military defense and criminal prosecution, but not social programs. Now, this does not forbid the government from doing these things, nor does it command the government to do those things. And so you can argue for those things on the basis of logic, reason, or just general welfare of mankind. But you can't use Jesus to to do it because Jesus does not command government to care for the poor and needy. Do you know who Jesus does command to care for the poor and needy? You and me. He commands his disciples to do it. And so a Christian can be against government social care, but assuming that you have some ability to do so, you had better be sure that you are doing the thing that you don't think government should do. And a Christian can argue for government social care, but you had better not think that paying your taxes or voting to use other people's tax dollars fulfills your duty to the poor. Assuming that you have some ability to do so, Scripture commands you to do it. And so this may involve giving to charities. That way we help people that we may not recognize their needs or even know that there's a need, but the charities are able to spot those. It also means, and especially means, this should really be our first thought, providing for individuals in our own circles who are poor and needy. God commands us, his disciples, to care for the poor and needy. And we see that Jesus, we especially see in this parable, in this, I almost said the, the parable word, in this story, we see that Jesus' greatest concern for the poor is not that they would become rich in this life, because this world is fading, but that they would become rich in heaven. There are other things we Uh, should learn from this passage. It teaches that heaven and hell are real, and real people go to both places. 
Jesus uses the word Hades here instead of hell, but we see that it's a real place, and it's a place of torment and flame. We also see that there is no pathway between heaven and Hades. Those in heaven cannot cross over, and those in Hades cannot cross over. And and I find it interesting, too, that the rich man doesn't come to repentance in Hades, and he doesn't try to either. It's not like he realizes his mistakes and asks for forgiveness. He does ask for mercy, he uses that word, but it's not the kind of mercy that a person of faith would ask for. He asks for Abraham to send Lazarus to dip his finger in water and cool his tongue. And that's kind of interesting and a little bit off. He actually thinks that Lazarus should walk into the fire to serve him. He still thinks that he's better than Lazarus. Now, we might get the impression sometimes that hell is filled with people who are sorry for their sins and they're trying to repent, but it's just too late. And that makes God seem cruel and unforgiving. But that's not the picture that we get here. Here we get a picture of a man who persists in his sin, even in hell. We also see something about the power of the word of God. The man had concern for his brothers. Apparently, he cared about them during his life. And so his second request, if Abraham won't do the first thing he asked, the second thing is that Abraham would send Lazarus to warn his brothers. Abraham says, no, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Signs and wonders do not really create faith, but the word of God does. If someone rejects the word of God, nothing is going to convince them. But God sends his Holy Spirit to convert hearts and minds through his word. And there's something ominously prophetic about the last part, where Abraham says, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Perhaps you remember Lazarus, not the poor beggar that we read about here, but the brother of Mary and Martha. He was a friend of Jesus, and he died. You can read about this in John 11. And after four days, Jesus brought him back from the dead. There were many witnesses. And so some of the Jews believed in Jesus, but others still did not. The chief priests and the Pharisees actually plotted to kill Jesus because of it. That's how they reacted to Jesus raising someone from the dead. And they even planned to kill Lazarus, too. And Abraham's words here are especially prophetic of Jesus. Even after Jesus himself was crucified and raised from the dead, they did not believe. And they did not believe because they did not want to believe. And this is simply human nature. We believe the things that we want to believe. That is, we trust the things we want to trust. The Pharisees had fallen in love with money. It had become their God, and it pushed out their trust in the one true God. Just a few verses before this story, if we back up just a couple of verses, Luke says that the Pharisees were lovers of money. That comes right after the parable of the dishonest manager. Luke says the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him, that is Jesus, 
They did not want to believe in Jesus. No matter how many signs he performed, and there are passages where the Pharisees even admit that Jesus is performing signs and wonders, no matter how many signs he performed, even if he raised the dead, and even if Jesus himself rose from the dead, they would not believe because they had a different God, and they had learned to trust this other God. And that is the danger of having wealth in this world. It's not like God just hates rich people. That's not it. He desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And heaven isn't just about making up for the inequity of this world. That's not why Lazarus went to heaven and the rich man went to Hades. They both received the reward of the God they trusted in. Lazarus had no earthly wealth to trust in, so he trusted in the one true God. He trusted in Jesus and was saved. But the rich man's heart was pulled away by his wealth. Wealth creates a false sense of security. If we have it in this life, and most Americans do have it, far more than people in other countries or especially in other ages of the world, if we have it in this life, we learn to trust it. We get the impression that it can fix any problem, right? If you're hungry, you can just go buy some food. If you're cold, you can buy a sweater and heat your house. If you're tired of walking, you can buy a car. If your car breaks down, you can pay someone to fix it, or you can just go buy a new one. If you're bored or lonely or sad, money probably has an answer for all of that, even if it's just a temporary answer. In Ecclesiastes, King Solomon says, Quite bluntly, money answers everything. Or at least it seems to, and Solomon knew that part too. The rich have very little or no idea what it means to be hungry or cold. Wealth shields them from all the signs that their bodies will fail and that this world will fail. But the poor know these things by experience. The poor know that their bodies will fail, and they know that this world will fail them. They see the world for the way that it really is, and this makes them more open to an eternal Savior. But the rich have this false sense of security. It's like a, it's like a frozen lake in the wintertime. And so imagine that all you know is winter. It's like you've been living in Narnia under the reign of the White Witch. Every lake is frozen all of the time for your entire life, and they're completely safe to walk and ski and even drive on. But then spring comes for the first time in your entire experience, and this is completely new to you, so you don't know that the ice is getting thinner and thinner and thinner, but then it fails you. That is money in this life. It works in this life, no doubt about it. But when things change, and they will, it will fail you. This dark and cold world will give way to the glorious warmth and light of the new creation. And the money that proves so powerful in this world will fail, and you will sink like the rich man into the tormenting flames of Hades. And Jesus desires to spare us from this. That's why he tells this story. The point is not, you rich people are all going to get what's coming for you. Jesus actually loves the Pharisees. He wants them to repent. He came to save the poor and the rich alike. He suffered and died for the sins of the rich and poor alike. The point is that the one who trusts in Jesus will be saved. We are all 
poor, and we all need to recognize this. In the economy of earth, some are rich and some are poor, but in the economy of heaven, we are all poor without Jesus. We have nothing that is worth anything there. Your money is no good there. The exchange rate between earth and heaven is exactly zero. Your good works are no good there. Everything that seems pretty good or even just above average in this world is garbage in heaven. In the economy of heaven, we are all poor without Jesus. And so he is our great and only hope. He is the only wealth that will last. He gave up the glories of heaven in order to be born like us, to suffer with us and to suffer for us. He died with us and for us so that he can bring us with him into his new creation. He accepted poverty so that he can lift us from the universal poverty of this world and give us the eternal wealth of his new creation. And so blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. Amen. And now may the peace of God, which passes all understanding, guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.